the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time once again, folks, for Inside the Game. I'm your host, Pat Williams, and every weekend, uh, right here on... AM 660, The Answer. We gather like this, and we get to talk sports uh, with some really interesting people. Uh, Jeff Sennis does the engineering each weekend for us. Uh, Andrew Herdliska did the producing. And my guest in the first segment, Steve Bulpit, longtime uh, Boston Celtics and NBA columnist for the Boston Herald, is with us. And, uh, Steve, nice to catch up with you. You as well, Pat. And, and so when I say long time, how long? You know, I never ask you your age, Pat. Uh, no, I didn't you, ask yeah. age. <laughs> well, actually, I'm 16 years old. I, I switched to Celsius this year. Good. Um, when was your first this, year? This is my 33rd season. I started full-time in the 85, uh, the start of the 85-86 season. Wow. Uh, lots of Celtic memories, right? Lots of interesting people. What's yeah, the... and I grew up in this area as well, so, um, I, you know, I... I my recollections and, and understanding of the Celtics goes back uh, quite a bit further, actually. What's the best part of your job? Uh, the off season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's. Uh, I grew up and went to college, uh, hoping to be a basketball player, and um, uh, you know, injuries and a, I will admit to a profound lack of talent. Uh, kind of erase that issue, but um, with this job, you still get to be in basketball, and as I'm sure you know from media situations, you still get to compete. And um, you know, every it's not every game; it's every day. There's a scoreboard up there, and it's a W or an L, and um, there's there's work to be done. And I think the the chance to to be involved with basketball and compete is and and to serve and deal with readers uh that's the that's the cool part how would you describe the boston media world um competitive uh and but i would describe it more i would describe the media as more an outgrowth of the of the fan base the the people here care about the games um you see it in your area particularly i would say probably in, with with college football Mm-hmm. Well, now take that and spread it over, uh, you know, basketball, baseball, football, hockey, um, and you know, college sports. Although it, certainly the the college uh, fan base is more segmented here because there are just a lot more schools and uh, they're not playing at the same level outside of Boston College. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's. You've got a media that's that's serving those fans, so uh, it's it's bound to be more intense. How good are these current Celtics, Steve? Uh, I, I 
would say I'm uncertain um, because I would expect that uh, they will be significantly better um, in the neck in two or three months from now than they are now. They've had a, a ridiculous early schedule that is of their own doing. Um, when they agreed to play in the game in London, they they get you get to make requests from the league, as you know, and they wanted buffer time around it. So four days before, four days after, no games. Mm. Um, so you know you've got to pay the piper at some point, and I think uh, that with the early crunch of games, uh, that's that's where it's come in. And um, so they're going to have more practice time and just having time for guys like uh, a rookie Jason Tatum, who's already playing well uh, and a second year player like Jalen Brown, having time for those guys to develop uh, and the team to develop together, I think will, will help them. What have you learned about Kyrie Irving that you didn't know? Uh, well, it's something I suspected, but I, I didn't know for sure is that, uh, Coming away from Cleveland, and um, you know, being under the uh, under uh, LeBron James, I think he studied that situation well, and uh, he took from LeBron things he liked, um, and he left things that he didn't. Um, I think he, he's understood that he's, he's come here with uh, you know with with the largest voice, and he. Take, seems to take that responsibility very seriously when he's talking post game um, and and on other days as well. Um, he, uh, I think, uh, has an idea in mind of what he wants to get across, and he will talk team issues. Um, and although people will be asking him about his things about him personally, uh, he'll try to uh, adjust those. To, toward uh, a larger perspective. So, um, you know, I, I think his grasp of um, the responsibilities when you're a leader in a media situation, because let's face it, a media situation is uh, what's getting to the fans and what's also getting back to your teammates because, you know, teams read the stuff, are, are among the biggest consumers of, of media, the, are the players on the team. Why was he so determined to leave Cleveland? Well, the what I wrote just after he'd asked out, and this is before I knew that Boston was even a real possibility for him, was that uh, what, what I'd heard from my people there or, is that uh, he, he didn't necessarily mind being second fiddle, uh, playing second fiddle. I don't think he enjoyed being reminded of it every 20 minutes. Um, I, I think he was just looking for a... Um, uh, a chance to kind of grow his game. And, you know, the part that he, and he doesn't talk about this stuff, but there are some other circumstantial evidence that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with LeBron, you know, uh, and where he's going to go next or if he's going to leave Cleveland again. And uh, perhaps this was a preemptive strike on, uh, on Kyrie's part to like, Hey, maybe I'd like to be somewhere else uh, before you know, the, the chance of LeBron leaving again, uh, you know, changes the Cavaliers uh, into a less competitive team. How do you explain the Isaiah Thomas phenomenon? And I think that's what it is, Steve. Well, um, I've 
often been proven wrong, um, never so often by one person mm. as Isaiah Thomas. Um, when he got to the Celtics, I'm thinking, well, look, you know, his best role is going to be as a sixth man. And it just every time I, I set a, a limit on what I think he's going to do, he, he surpasses it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I probably shouldn't even talk about anything with him because I'll be made to look more foolish than I already am. Um, but uh, he's, he's a guy that uh, has the chip on his shoulder, from being a, a smaller smaller player and being doubted, uh, not so much by people like me, but more like by people that are in uh, making basketball decisions, and um, he just works ridiculously hard in the off season. Uh, he's maniacal about his workouts and about improving. Um, but having said that, I think that. Uh, that Boston was a really good spot for him. I think Brad Stevens uh, got a lot out of him, and um, you know, uh, <clears throat> we'll see how it how it works out, how it shakes out in Cleveland, um, and you know how things defensively work out there with him and the rest of that crew. Whether they're able to develop a a good team defensive scheme that will uh, kind of hide some of the weaknesses of a of a five nine player. But, uh, you know, he just has a, a supreme belief in himself that's based on, on hard work and nothing else. Tell me about Brad Stevens. Wow. Um, he's a, I, I would say he's, just a, he's a very consistent person. Um, and he is aware of things um, in a way that, that one might not have expected from someone uh, coming into the league. Um, I will tell you a, a, a media situation that, um, you know, isn't so much important and what it meant for that moment, but maybe is illustrative of, uh, of Brad as in a larger sense. Uh, the first regular season game that Brad Stevens coached was in Toronto and the Raptors had just moved their media seating at that point to an upper level, and it was difficult to get down afterwards. They hadn't quite worked out the logistics on that. Uh, Brad came out for his post-game uh, press conference in the little hallway near the alcove next to the locker room, and the PR person said, you know, go ahead. And Brad scanned the crowd and said, to, turned to the PR guy and said, I'm going to wait for my regulars. Um, you know, if this were a game, that would be court awareness. But um, just, you know, attention to detail, uh, understanding things like that, um, I think you can uh, take that moment and extrapolate it to how he uh, views a lot of things. And, um, you know, I, I, it's pretty clear that, uh, number one, the players have liked playing for him. I think that's because of the consistency. And I think it's also clear his track record that he's gotten a lot out of guys that um, hadn't done as well before and don't do as well after they leave him. My guest is Steve Bulpit, uh, the uh, Boston Celtics, an NBA columnist for the Boston Herald. 
uh, all the way back till the mid 80s. So Steve has seen it all in the Boston area regarding this basketball team. Uh, we've got another segment with Steve, and um, I want you to stay with us. We'll be back. Uh, please visit my website. It's uh, patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And um, my latest book is out. Uh, it's called Leading God's Way. Uh, you can uh, go up to Amazon and uh, see it listed there, and I hope you enjoy it. I uh, write a great deal on leadership and teamwork and uh, success and so forth. So uh, check that one out, and uh, uh, I think you'll have a good time reading it. More with Steve Bulpit right after this on Inside the Game with Pat Williams. It's AM 660, The Answer in Orlando. Medicare rules are confusing. They should be. There are over 130,000 pages of regulations. There's Part A through D, Medicare Advantage, and Medigap. According to the CMS, there are government programs available that can help you pay for your medical expenses. Choosing the right Medicare plan is a really big deal. The wrong choice can cost you a lot of money, and the right choice can put more money in your pocket. Call one of our licensed representatives today. At 65 Plus Medicare, our free service can show you a plan that will maximize your Medicare benefits, ensure you are taking advantage of all available government assistance programs, and save you money. Plus, call right now and get a free report on how to avoid costly Medicare mistakes. Call now. 800-884-9325. 800-884-9325. That's 800-884-9325. at the longtime writer for the Boston Herald covering the Boston Celtics. Uh, Steve, what's the future hold for Gordon Hayward? Well, the, the team continues to say that they're not expecting him back this year. Um, but um, I wrote just after the injury or just after the surgery um, that by all accounts with an injury like this, it's it's quite possible that he returns this season. And... Um, with the you know the reports from his rehab, I think still think that's a, a very strong possibility, if not a likelihood, that uh, that he's playing again this season. Um, of course, then the next question would be if he if he does come back, how well he's able to play, um, how quickly he's able to integrate into a, a rotation, um, and just uh, what the overall effect will be. But um, yeah, I. I would not be surprised. In fact, I would have some measure of expectation that he's um, at least able to come back this year. Now, what the team did with saying, um, you know, we're not expecting him back this year, that takes any pressure off him and also uh, reduces or eliminates the idea of disappointment should he suffer a setback. But um, again, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's playing again this season. Uh, Steve, uh, how much better is Jason Tatum than you thought? Well, the, the thing that I that um, I think we're all, I guess, kind of missed on was the three-point shooting. Um, that was a, a question coming in. Uh, but, you know, with a 19-year-old kid, um, his uh, the steps you take are not necessarily small increments um 
when you work on an aspect of your game, uh, you can take a, a giant step, and that clearly uh, is is what he's done there. But more than a simple um, skill level in a certain area, I think the thing that's impressed me most with him is just he's out there competing. He's not out there trying to overthink the game or um, uh, worried about uh, ancillary issues. He's just out there when the ball is thrown up, He's out there grabbing rebounds and um, not playing with any, not, not playing mechanically at all. He's just, he's again just competing. Mm. What's your most vivid memory of Larry Bird, Steve? <laughs> uh, do we have a couple hours? <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's there's something that's always stuck in my head about him, um, and it's just a weird little moment of, uh, you know, it's kind of just a snapshot of him. The Celtics um, would generally, in that era, play the Lakers the Sunday after the All-Star game, that next weekend. Mm -hmm. And it would be an afternoon game on national television, and it would be a big deal. Um, You know, there'd be, you know, the... the, It was uh, when the NBA was really... point in the year when they'd really start to to get it more heavily noticed and that was a a real bellwether game for the league and uh it was before one of those games um larry's uh sitting in his locker in the forum uh at his locker and uh he's lacing up sneakers and he's just kind of sitting there in a sing-song voice and not not aware of anything around him and just kind of saying kind of singing to himself like a child, we're playing the Lakers, we're playing the Lakers, <laughs> you know, I think that's the way he approached the game. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he loved it like a kid and, um, you know, and just like playing in the park, he wanted to keep the court. That's beautiful. What, what do you think of this current NBA, Steve? <clears throat> I think it's, I think it's better than people give it credit for. Um, you know, and, and it traces back to something I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, and uh, or not, I'm, I'm certain you're aware of, but uh, uh, and you also grasped the difficulty at the time was when the NBA decided to send professionals, so, or, or the USA decided to send NBA players to the uh, Olympics. There was kind of an outcry in this country, you know, what are you doing this for, you know, and. Uh, you're just trying to, you know, uh, beat up on these other teams because you've lost a couple times here. And the reality was the rest of the world wanted the the U.S. to send its professionals because they knew what it would do uh, to the game in its areas. And I think uh, one of the big reasons why the NBA uh, is doing so well now is because of the influx of foreign talent. Um and uh, so I, I think it's done well. I, I, the the one issue I have with uh, with the game today uh, is something I mentioned with Jason about Jason Tatum. The competitiveness. The the reason why his competitiveness to me sticks out is because um, it's a little bit different with a lot of players today. Um, and I've talked about this with a number of people and. I wrote about it years ago, and I think the story still gets passed around because I'll get 
messaged on it um, is that uh, in in today's players in the summertime, uh, as they're developing, um, the younger players, high school kids, they're playing basketball in gymnasiums. They're playing AAU basketball where they may have any number of games over the course of a weekend. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's always another game and they're being coached by some people that, uh, you know, they, they just, they want to, they're tying themselves to the players in some cases. Um, and it's, it's a different environment. Whereas uh, the people that when I grew up playing and the guys in the in earlier eras, in the summertime, you played basketball outside, um, where if you lost, you you sat for, you know, hours. Uh, sometimes there was a, a keep the court mentality that was bred, uh, that that uh, competitiveness was bred into your game. I I'm gonna bet strongly that Pat, you can recall someone from your neighborhood who might not have been the best player but always seemed to wind up on the winning team. <laughs> um, and there was that just that that mentality bred into you that you had to keep the court. Um, I remember going down at, uh, to uh, New York as a skinny kid in high school and learning that on game point, you either hit a jump, you had to hit a jump shot because if you drove, uh, you were most likely going to bleed internally. <laughs> Steve Bulpit is our guest. Steve, how is Bill Russell remembered in Boston to this day? Uh, I, I think he's, you know, he, he's an icon to, to people. Um, you know, the statue in City Hall Square. Um, you know, I, I just, I think he's viewed uh, generally as what, you know, what he is around the country is that uh, he's the, the greatest winner in, in team sports history. Um, and, uh, he hasn't been around uh, as much, but I think people are still very conscious, um, of, and I think more conscious and more appreciative now of his activism and, uh, appreciative of the difficulty of, uh, of, of being as he was, uh, in that time. It's clearly still difficult these days, but even more so then. Steve, who were your favorite uh, sports writers growing up in Boston area? Wow. Um, well, there was Tim Horgan from the Herald, um, Lee Montville from the Globe, um, who I uh, made, you know, was fortunate to, be, to become friends with. Um, might be one of the worst golfers in the history of the world, but someone you <laughs> would be clearly on your list of, of people you'd most like to play golf with. Um any number of people. Um, uh, it was, again, it was a market when, where people could, uh, there were good writers. I mean, a guy like Montville uh, was a columnist, was one of the first younger people to be given a column. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, was able to write in a, um, in a more relatable way for someone younger like me. Um, but, uh, gosh, there were just too many, you know. How will Bob Ryan be remembered? Um, you know, as uh, as the you know the basketball icon that he is. Um, you know, um, 
that's basically it. And he went, he went on to to write general, be a general columnist, but um, you know, people still remember him for basketball, even though I'm not sure exactly how many years he covered the Celtics, mm-hmm. but um, you know, that's still his uh, his calling card. How will Peter Gammons be remembered? Yeah, uh, same deal. I think you know, baseball. Actually, but he actually covered baseball straight through for for much longer. Um, and I think people around here kind of miss uh, getting uh, more regular doses of Peter Gammons. Um, I, I, I think that would you know would be helpful to everybody if they could if he could find his way into into print more here uh, in the the uh, the more traditional outlets. How about Gordon Eads? Well, Gordon, I go back to when he was covering the Lakers uh, years ago. Um, but again, you know, uh, uh, Gordon certainly had an impact on the on the local scene. Steve, uh, what do the next oh five or six months hold for the Celtics? I think it's a pretty pretty great mystery um right now they're you know uh pretty solidly have the best record in the east but as we know that doesn't necessarily mean anything it's uh what you're doing when it matters uh the celtics last year had the you know finished with the number one seed in the east but they were not the best team in the east clearly uh the the cavaliers were better but they were uh, spending their regular season, especially down the stretch, preparing for the postseason. I'm not sure the Celtics were better than the Raptors last year either, and they went to a difficult seven games against Washington. I would say right now that the, those teams, the uh, uh, forget about the Cavaliers, who I still think are are the best until proven otherwise. Uh, I'm not sure the Celtics would be a, an overwhelming favorite to beat either Toronto or Washington. And uh, there are other teams that will give them a hard time as well. So, you know, that's as they stand today. They've got uh, a lot of work to do between now and mid-April. They've got a lot of improving to do if they want to have a a long playoff run as they did last year. Steve Bullpit of the Boston Herald has been our guest. Uh, We've got more after this on Inside the Game with Pat Williams. This is AM660 Answer in Orlando. Steve Bullpit, the uh, longtime NBA columnist for the Boston Herald, uh, covers the Boston Celtics, our guest in that first segment. Uh, Anita DeFrance is with us. Her book is out, uh, My Olympic Life. Uh, She has had a long, long career uh, involved with the United States Olympics, the International Olympic Committee, and uh, I'm so glad we can hook up, Anita. I've enjoyed your book, and... (laughs) Uh, followed your life with great interest over the years. So thanks for plugging in with me. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You open your book with my family, Meet the DeFrances. Uh, what do we learn <laughs> What do we learn there, Anita? It's of importance is to know that my family goes back uh, many generations in this country. I think I didn't put it in there, but the first one was born in 1709 mm. uh, and, and uh, was... Um, baptized in a Methodist church outside of Philadelphia, interestingly enough. And uh, then, after a couple of generations, um, Alonzo de France, 
decides to hear the call of helping others once he'd already moved to Tennessee. And then uh, Benjamin, they called him Pat Singleton, was beginning a movement to have emancipated uh, people uh, move to um, to um, Kansas, where they could have a, a closer semblance of freedom than they would any place east of there. And so the Pat Singleton movement was born, and Alonzo dated to France, my great, uh, I guess he was just my great-grandfather, yes, um, began his service to others in leading, I guess it was nearly uh, 300 people, 300 families, mm-hmm. to have a better life. Mm. Um, his son, my grandfather, we called him Pappy, uh, became in, involved in the YMCA, or the colored YMCA, or the Negro YMCA movement, mm-hmm. uh, after finding the love of his life and moving back, moving to Indianapolis, Indiana, and marrying her, my grandmother, who we called Nana, but the rest of the people called my grandfather Chief because of his stature, and uh, he certainly looked pretty Native American, and also they called her Little Chief. Because of her stature and connection to the big chief. <laughs> As you grew up, Anita, what were your athletic interests? Oh, I wanted to do some of anything. Uh, I was—I learned to swim when I was four years old. Mm-hmm. That was uh, because of spending time at the YMCA at the day camp, and they invited us to a tea party. I said, "Okay, tea party—that sounds good." Where is it? And they said, okay, it's here. It's just at the bottom of this pool here. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> that was a good way to trick kids into having fun in the pool when they didn't know how to swim, to go to the bottom and pretend that you're having a tea party. Well, it, it, it was enough for me. I enjoyed being in the water, and so that's how I learned to swim. Anita, you do a chapter. It's chapter six, actually, Becoming an Olympian. Uh, what what do you what do you tell us there? What are you writing about? Oh, I'm writing about uh, what it took back then to actually make the team, which was not easy. And I still don't know. Uh, you know, our teams are always they're miracles because there's no set path for one to take uh, to become an Olympian. In other countries, they do analysis and. You know, and, and they do measurements and they watch your growth. But here, it's okay. The door's open. Who wants to come in and prove yourself? What was your talent? What was your sport? Oh, I'm sorry. It was the noblest of sports, a rowing. I call it the noblest of sports because what else could I call it after all? They're in the eight-oared shell with Coxman. There are actually nine people because the Coxman, mm-hmm. who is the leader, um, and medals as well. And uh, uh, so there's a language that doesn't quite make sense, but it does once you've seen it. Uh, and, and we work really, really hard. Only recently since the not only my book, but the book called The Boys in the Boat came out where they talked about yes. how hard you work. Mm. That book did, has done extremely well, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And it's kind of opened the door on saying things that we rowers today probably would not say uh, about how uh, how uh, challenging the sport is and how much you go through because of the pride in the rest of the boat. And uh, 
the relationship with you and the other rowers, although you never talk in the boat, only talk and talk. Um, you never opine about uh, the practice uh, on the water. Uh, it, it's, there are strict rules which are, by which we abide. What about the chapter called Crossing the Finish Line? Uh, that uh, sounds interesting. Ah, uh, well, uh, that one uh, had to do... Oh, I, now I have to go and look at the book to, to know what I said in there. Could you give me a hint since I'm not looking at the book? Well, we, we, we talked about becoming an Olympian and then crossing mm-hmm. the finish line. Uh, I guess the bottom line is, how, how did you do? What was what was the result? What ah, okay. Ha- what happened? Got it, yeah. What happened? Well, uh, we actually were sent there uh, in a way that I hope no Olympic team, rowing team, has since been sent. Our very first race uh, together as a team was the first race at the Olympic Games, and that's really not the best approach. Uh, so... We were all determined. We had one goal, and the goal was a gold medal. And no one was going to tell us we could do any less than that. Uh, so we set off in our first race, and we were ahead of our arch rivals, the East Germans. They don't exist anymore as a country. Um, and when the wall came down, that changed that. And uh, we were doing well against them. And in our last 250 meters, uh, there was a plan to sprint at a certain time, and our coxswain, therefore, called for the sprint. And it was as though we hit a brick wall. We were moving along as fast as we could, and boom. And I was like, what? So I'm sure every woman in the boat, except perhaps the bow, was thinking, oh, my God, what's going on here? Well, we're going to take the boat. Each of us will take the boat across the finish line <laughs> individually if necessary. And everyone really hauled, and suddenly the pressure came off. As we got moving again, I noticed, you're not supposed to look out of the boat, but just out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the blade, that's what we call the oars, the blade or oars, floating off in the distance that appeared to be ours. Each uh, oar or blade has the country's colors painted on in a distinctive fashion. So I could tell it was one of our blades. And I thought, that's odd, and kept on hauling. And we got to the finish line, and uh, I, I have so much admiration for her. Our bow woman had indeed caught what's called a crab because it's as though some uh, animal from the deep had reached up and grabbed the blade and wouldn't release it. And so she caught a boat, what's called a boat-stopping crab, and released it and stayed in the boat, which was a good thing because she could have been injured if she had jumped out of the boat. I, uh, the rest of the blades and such. And then, uh, two days later, because we had failed to qualify for the, the final round, the medal round, we raced again. And I don't know what Harry Parker said to her. He was a coach. He coached at Harvard for many years, and the Harvard guys were just appalled at the way we treated him, but we were all adult women, and, you know, he was the coach, and he was a great coach, but he wasn't the great God Harry to us yet. Uh, so um, somehow... We, we were able to, in the very next race, uh, two days later, to win the race, qualifying us for the finals. And then in the finals, I did think this was a little bit too much of a coincidence. As we were rowing up to the starting line, again, you know, um, you're not supposed to look out of the boat, but every once in a while, especially when you're just going to the starting line, 
I happen to know this, this large uh, uh, boat with a large um, smokestack uh, going up the course, kind of alongside of us, and which had the hammer and the sickle on it. Mm. And I thought, what? <laughs> the St. Lawrence River was right next to the course, uh, and that was the tributary which um, gave water to the course because they had dug it out. It was on the place where the world... Um, how the World Fair was. So Buckminster Fuller's uh, beer was still there. It caught on fire, but the uh, the superstructure was still in place, but nothing else was. And so there was that to my right, and to my left was the uh, hammer and sickle <laughs> going up the course. Anita, I want yeah, you... For me. Mm-hmm. Anita, let's, I want to move to the 1980 Olympics, the team with no result. Uh, President Carter's call for an Olympic boycott. Uh, what what are your memories of that time? Oh, it was a horrific time for us. I don't think anyone understood that we were all self-funded. Not one penny of federal, state, or local uh, government money went into our training, our preparation, or even going to the Olympic Games. Never. Never had happened, and never since then has it happened. There's a little bit of federal money that goes into the Paralympic Games, uh, but then there was nothing. And in fact, there wasn't a Paralympic Games until after 84, so um, it wasn't an issue. But nothing from any government level supported us, so there was no nexus. By, by then, I, you know, I went to law school in 1974 and finished in 77 and began practicing law, and I'd been part of the uh, test people who testified on behalf of the now called the Ted Stevens Amateur and Olympic Sports Act. And, uh, no, it's Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act of 1978. So I knew what it said. It said only if the team is in peril of, of great danger uh, should any action be taken to keep them at home. And the only people who can take such action is the board of directors of the U.S. Olympic Committee. No one else. And this is by federal law. Well, I was doing my best to explain this to people, including the administration, who, you know, it was masterful politically. After all, you had this group of maybe uh, 500 people and their friends and family, so stretch it out maybe to 2,000 people who would be directly affected, family, friend, coaches and a country of 250 or so million people. So politically, it's a game winner. Uh, But for those who were on the team but did not have a chance to compete, they're not Olympians. In order to be an Olympian, you have to compete at the Olympic Games, and that's how you become uh, noticed as someone who competed at the Olympic Games and therefore an Olympian. So I feel so badly. There are about 225, I should know the exact number, I can find it, of uh, men and women who never competed at members of the uh, Olympics. Anita de France, our guest. We've got more with Anita, her book, My Olympic Life. I'm Pat Williams. This is Inside the Game. It's AM 660, The Answer in Orlando. 
Hey, Dave, why in such a hurry? I've got so much to do, Phil. Our company's having an important show this month, and you know what they say about first impressions. We need a display booth, retractable banners, table throws, and banners, and I don't even know where to start. Three words, Dave. True Blue Designs. Who? Yeah, True Blue Designs. I had the same situation not too long ago. It took care of my banners, my table toppers, my signage. We looked great. True Blue Designs has over 50 years of combined experience in the signs and graphics business. They will consult, design, and produce your displays, show banners, and accessories, and they will deliver. Great website, too. Go online to tbdsigns.com. I need presentation folders, brochures, flyers, business cards, and promotional items. Can they handle that? Yeah, Dave, they sure can. But don't forget the name, True Blue Designs. Make a lasting impact at your next business meeting, convention, or special event. True Blue Designs. Don't ignore your image. Embrace it with True Blue Designs. Take a tour at tbdsigns.com or call 407-326-6800. True Blue Designs. Anita de France, a legendary Olympian, is our guest. Her book, My Olympic Life, it's a good read. Uh, let's move to 1984, the Los Angeles Olympic Gold Rush, my dream job at the LA 84 Foundation. Uh, walk us through that period, Anita. So I had the great privilege. I had the great privilege of being invited by Peter Ubroth to come and work at the LA 84. Uh, it's called the LA Olympic Organizing Committee, LAOOC. And that was a remarkable experience. I started my work in uh, in August of 1981, and there were fewer than 30 people there when I started. Um, our final count of full-time staff only rose to um, 1,900, but that was only in June of 1984. So those of us who were there early got to understand how all of the pieces work and were part of putting it together and making sure all the things work together. So after the games, however, as I told my staff frequently, the games will be over, the athletes will go home, and what will you be doing with the rest of your life? So it was important to have a little bit of uh, uh, idea of what will come next because the end will come and there will be no more L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee jobs. Uh, I and uh, three other members of the staff were given the job by Harry Usher, who was the uh, second-in-command, uh, of taking a look at Southern California and find out what new sport needed. Because uh, one of the, the uh, promises made when the tripartite uh, agreement was, was made was that surplus, 60% of the surplus would go to the USOC, who would divide it. 40% to the USOC, and 20% would be divided among all of the national governing bodies, meaning like tennis and basketball and, and rowing, would get an equal share of whatever the 20% of the surplus was. And 40% would stay in Southern California for the benefit of uh, sports. Uh, the board decided to focus more on seeing how they could help the youth sports aspect. And so uh, we did our survey and came back with the findings and presented the findings in January of 1985. Uh, the board accepted them, and I thought I was finished with my L.A. Uh, OOC. Uh, but 
I was called back by the man who was selected as president, uh, Stan Wheeler, who was a uh, professor at Yale Law School. Uh, he wasn't a lawyer himself. He specialized in the sociology of white-collar crime. And he helped uh, structure the foundation and uh, invest the money on a real library, which was built and operates today, interestingly enough, as the foremost, the, I'll say the best, the best, uh, uh, the best digital library, sports library in the world. Uh, we uh, are not necessarily better Olympic library because the International Olympic Committee has that one, but for everything else, and including much of the Olympic items, uh, the LA84 Foundation has the best. So if you have any answers, questions you need an answer to, LA84 Foundation is the place to go. Uh, and that was my dream job. Uh, about six months, I don't know, it's good uh, uh, some point in the first year that Sam was there, he uh, called me to ask, if we could talk and get my opinion on some things, and we did talk, and he did get my opinion. And I got a call maybe a month later from him asking if I'd be willing to work on some projects for the foundation. I thought, well, trying to get this business started, but maybe I'll have time. I thought, yes, certainly, I'd be glad to do that. Anita DeFrance is with us. We're talking about her book, My Olympic Life. Anita, you do a chapter called Women and Sport should be a non-issue. What do you write about there? Well, the point is that um, sport is something that we as humans do. It's not just one part of humanity. It's all of humanity. Uh, People who are uh, what we call disabled, uh, people who have mental uh, issues, and everyone loves sport. So how could it be that sport is only for men? That's just nonsense. Therefore... Since we are all absolutely unequivocally, unequivocally equally human, then we should have equal opportunity in sport. And so once I was able to talk to enough members of my colleagues on the IOC, I was actually given the job by the, uh, the previous, a previous, twice previous president of the IOC, Juan Antonio Famaros, who was a Spaniard, interestingly enough. Uh, he asked me to help them solve this problem. I said, okay. Uh, it took a little bit longer than I had hoped, and we're still, uh, the IOC itself isn't quite at equality, but we're moving along the right path. And at the Games, which is really important, because how can you tell an Olympian that they don't know anything about sport? It's rather impossible. So I felt it was important to have a greater number of women Olympians in all of the countries. When I started the project, which was after 1996 at the uh, Atlanta Games, the Centennial Games, uh, we found that there were 26 nations who had never had women on their team. So the first uh, target was those 26 nations. And over time, we grew to have more than, I guess we're at 205 or six National Olympic Committees now. So the goal was always to make sure that the new ones had uh, women Olympians who could come and and serve sport after they finished their competitive years. So off we went, and I'm happy to say that now every National Olympic Committee in the world has uh, women Olympians, and that's everyone. 
And now on the field of play, we're working toward having uh, 50-50 uh, among the athletes who come and compete at the Games. We believe we'll be there by 2024, if not sooner. Uh, but that, that's our goal at our Youth Olympic Games, which this year will be contested in Buenos Aires. Uh, we will have 50-50. Uh, and uh, the Olympic uh, Youth Youth Olympic Winter Games, which will be in uh, Lausanne uh, two years later, uh, there too there'll be a 50-50 equality among the athletes. Anita de France, our guest, her book "My Olympic Life." Anita, you uh, close your book with the future of the Olympic movement. Uh, wh- mm-hmm. What what are you telling us there? Uh, I'm telling uh, telling us, telling me, too, that uh, there's more work to be done to get to us completely uh, being within our Olympic ideals, which in the most basic form, I say, are um, mutual respect and fair play, which, of course, goes to the treatment of women and men. And we must, I believe we must always keep those concepts in mind as we make our decisions for the Olympic movement. That's the members of the IOC, uh, we are the governing board of the Olympic movement, and there are now a hundred of us, and we're elected. Uh, right Now those who have been elected since the year 2000 can serve until they're 70. If one was elected before the year 2000, uh, 80 is your use-by date, uh, your personal birth date. When you hit 80, then um, you can no longer serve as a full member. You can become an honorary member if you're if your service up to that point has been uh, appropriate. Uh, but uh, that, that's the use by date for those of us who were elected before the year 2000. So we've made some changes, um, and I think we're operating better. Of course, the, the thing that just it seems not to be able to um, go away is the, the athletes who will cheat by using drugs. And I call it the athletes. I know that sometimes it's uh, perhaps even an entire national government that insists that they cheat so they can do better. But athletes are not idiots. They can tell when their progress has changed dramatically. And if they don't have the continuing support, continuing support, that their progress is likely to fall back. And this is primarily during the uh, preparation season. It's rare that someone would still have dope in their system during the, uh, the games or the competitions because they know exactly when those will be. And there's a lot of information now on when you have to, quote, cycle out so that you will attest clean. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really, I mean, let me be specific. I'm sad for the athletes of Russia and the other nations that use their um, techniques because you will be caught. And what we're saying to the world is don't come to the games if you are dope, because we will find out. And now we have 10 years for our science to progress. We can keep testing the samples for 10 years, and we will catch you. And I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy that we've changed the system so that there is what's called an uh, independent testing authority. So the international federations can use the international testing authority and they won't be tempted, as certain sports were, to take money for play if an athlete is found to have been doped. That's not going to happen anymore. 
Anita DeFrance, uh, our guest, and um, summarize for us, uh, Anita, your life and your involvement with the Olympics. Give me 60 seconds in closing about what all that has meant to your life. Okay, 60 seconds on 61 years. I consider my learning to swim as the beginning of my Olympic journey. It has been a privilege to have all these opportunities I've had. It's been a privilege to be able to stand for athletes and uh, and and further the need for a clean playing field. It's been a privilege to get to know other Olympians, as one does, and to live in the Olympic Village is a privilege like none other. Everyone there has been successful. Everyone there has been selected by their nation to come to the Games and to compete at the Games. It's a special village. And to be able just to walk through it from time to time, as I do now, is a remarkable privilege. And uh, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate being a part of setting up the structures that will help the games endure and flourish, which I believe to be the foremost responsibility of members of the International Olympic Committee. Anita DeFrance has been our guest. Her book is called My Olympic Life. Thanks for joining us this weekend on Inside the Game. I'm your host, Pat Williams. You're listening to AM660, The Answer in Orlando. Uh, We're back next weekend for more. Have a great week ahead. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.